Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank. You know, one of the things I've really missed during the pandemic has been live performances. Like, I would honestly go to someone doing bad karaoke at a bar right now if I could, just to kind of uh, scratch that itch. Uh, and even though we're not quite back at the point where we can get together in person for this show, we are going to spend the next hour talking about the art of live performance. First up with filmmaker Andrea Nevins, whose new documentary, Hysterical, celebrates women in stand-up comedy. Then we're going to be chatting with writer Hanif Abdul-Rakib about his new book, which looks at how black performance of all kinds has impacted American culture. And then our pal Shaky Graves is going to join us from Austin to talk about his attempts at being an actor before he decided to focus on music. Please make your way back to your seat and get comfy because it's almost showtime. Livewire gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It is going really well this week. Uh, from where I'm sitting here in my house in Portland, Oregon, I can see a variety of cherry blossoms that are just hitting their kind of peak. Oh. And it's so beautiful, but I'm also a little sad because it's a short time offer. And now I'm thinking about how those blooms aren't going to be there pretty soon. Now you're thinking about when the uh, there will no longer be pedicle elongation. What does that mean? Um, you know, the cherry blossoms that surround the Potomac mm -hmm. in D.C., uh, you always want to get there at the perfect moment where it's where they've all bloomed and it's just like snowing pink. And the watch lists look for things called pedicle elongation. That's peak cherry blossom. That's that just like perfect moment between when they're they're sort of blossoming and before they start withering. That's pedicle That's right. elongation. Are you ready to do some public radio elongation? I am pedicle. <laughs> yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> this is going to be this is going to be peak public radio variety recorded from home. Molly, are we recording? You know, you know I hope I think we are. All right. <laughs> Take it away, Elena. From PRX, it's Livewire. Recorded from our actual houses. Welcome to the Livewire house party. This week, filmmaker Andrea Nevins and writer Hanif Abdurraqib with music from Shaky Graves. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. 
Uh, thank you so much, Elena Passarella. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, we have, I think, a really good show in store for everyone uh, this week. Of course, we always like to ask the LiveWire listeners a question this week because we're talking a lot about performance. We ask the listeners, what's the most memorable performance you have ever seen? And we're going to be mm-hmm. hearing those answers coming up uh, in just a little bit. First, though, of course, we got to start with the best news we heard this week. It's our little weekly reminder that there is good news happening out there in the world all the time. I'd like to highlight some of that. Elena, what is the best news you heard this week? Oh, Luke, are you ready? I'm ready. I don't know if you're ready. I don't know if you're ready for this one. It's almost too cute. Um, this takes place in, I believe, Duplin County, North Carolina, mm-hmm. where there was a stray dog who's now named Sisu who got picked up at the Dollar General because okay. he had broken into the Dollar General, not one, not two, not three, not four, but five times. And every single time he stole the exact same purple stuffed unicorn toy. And he he just would stride right in and take his toy. And they're like, that's not yours. And so when animal control came to take him to a shelter, the animal control worker, her name is Officer Lane, bought the unicorn for Sisu. And then when he went to the shelter, he got to sit with it in his cage. Uh, happy ending. Number one, Sisu has, is, is up for adoption and there's tons of applications for him. So he is going to have a wonderful forever home. And number two, there is a picture of this dog with this unicorn. And the, it's this huge stuffed animal and the cutest dog you've ever seen. He's just one of those dogs that has one of those faces where you go, oh, it's a good boy. Aww. I think I saw a picture of, of this on the internet. And yeah, it's just one of those things like if you're looking at a picture of Sisu and Sisu's purple unicorn toy and you don't smile immediately go to the hospital check your pulse there's something that is going on because it is the most adorable picture of all time speaking of things that are i think kind of adorable the best news Mm -hmm. i saw this week uh was well the big news was that they managed to get that huge container ship that was stuck in the suez canal yes the ever given they managed to get it unstuck yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but this was the really cool thing. They they had all these tugboats in the Suez Canal that were working to try to get this thing free. And when they finally did one of the tugs, it's called the Mashhur. That's how you pronounce the name mm-hmm. of this Egyptian tug. The dudes on the tug were so excited that they had gotten the ever given free that they just started on this impromptu chant. <laughs> They're chanting Mashur is number one. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a sport now. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like one dude is just filming this on his cell phone. They're like up on the like very tippy top of the tugboat. And I mean, you could just tell that they're obviously super excited and that they were sort of part of, you know, getting the you know, trade one of the major trading routes in the entire planet open again. Like that's a big deal. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think some of the photos don't show exactly how big the ever given is, but Pittsburghers put it for scale up against Steelers stadium where the Steelers play Heinz field. And it's like 
all of the parking lots long from one major highway artery, like all the way to the river. And so a little tippy teeny weeny tugboat that can do that work. They must have just felt like superheroes. I also have to say this on a personal note. I've talked on this show many times about how bad I've been at driving boats. (laughs) This thing made me feel like... Me crashing my boat into three other boats in the marina back when I had one. This whole thing made me feel like a lot better about my maritime skills. So maybe that for me is the best news that I heard this week. All right, let's invite our first guest on over to this house party. Uh, She is the filmmaker behind this new documentary, Hysterical which is about the history uh, and also the future of women in stand-up comedy. Uh, This film premiered at this year's South by Southwest Festival. It's also out right now on FX and Hulu. Let's welcome Andrea Nevins over to the Livewire house party. So happy to be here. Couldn't be happier. Mm -hmm. What got you interested in this topic in the first place? You know, I had just finished a documentary about Barbie, Tiny Shoulders, and uh, and I had done a deep dive into looking at the past 60 years of uh, women and feminism. Um, uh, Barbie was born at the very beginning of the second wave of feminism, and uh, and I was not done exploring and was looking for a way to look out ahead. Um, where, where was feminism going? Mm. And there's no more interesting place, I think, than, uh, than in the world of stand-up because those are the people who really push boundaries uh, and kind of get us to the very end of, of, of what we're allowed to talk about, mm. uh, what we're allowed to think about. And so that seemed like a, like a cool place to go and explore. Uh, you profile a bunch of different comedians uh, who are women in this film, and they have sort of wildly different backgrounds. I'm wondering if there's like a through line that you started to pick up as the director in their experience that kind of got them to being stand-up comics? Well, <laughs> as, as Fortune very clearly says, uh, damage. Right. Um, but I think that there's not any of us who couldn't find some element of damage in our childhood that uh, changed our courses in some way. Yeah, um, we all act out in different ways just mm-hmm. for – some of us, it's talking into a microphone. <laughs> exactly. And for some of us, it's hiding behind a camera and making movies and telling stories. So you can figure out what my damage was. Um, but, uh, but, but all of these women really found a need to uh, express themselves on stage. Uh, and in that very unique, I think, frightening way of being all alone on stage without a director, without other actors, and even for them without props. So um, I began to see them really as superheroes, mm. just really so brave to get up there uh, against all odds. Um, I mean, hopefully things are changing and evolving a little bit here in 2021, but a lot of the comedians that you interview in this film, they got started uh, you know, 10 years, sometimes 20 years ago. What was the experience like for them as they described it to you of of starting out, you know, in the 80s of trying to be a woman doing stand-up comedy? It was fairly terrifying and dreadful uh, in in a multitude of ways, from demeaning introductions uh, to not being able to get up on stage at all because 
For example, a club owner might say, oh, you know, we had a woman on a couple of weeks ago and she really didn't do very well. So we're not having any <laughs> yeah, women. Yeah, like Judy Gold, I think, is saying in the film that somebody said to her three months ago, we had a woman <laughs> at this club and it didn't go well. Like I've been in stand-up comedy clubs. If if a man having a bad stand-up comedy set meant there couldn't be any more men for three months, there would be like no men in the comedy club. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And and I was I was really shocked just going out and shooting marquees, you know, mm-hmm. as B-roll, uh, and seeing man, 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 mm-hmm. man, mm-hmm. woman, man, 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 man. Mm-hmm. And I think that all those women are still finding that. So that's a hard thing to come up against as well. And then in addition, um, I think it's just a very different thing for women to be on the road alone. Uh, one of the mm-hmm. things that you have to do to become a, an excellent stand-up comedian is practice, practice, practice. And a great way to practice is to go out uh, outside of your home city and get stage time. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of these women, it meant and they're very funny about it, um, ar- arriving and getting picked up by <laughs> right. somebody who feels like a serial killer or you know, people following you mm-hmm. uh, to, a, to a kind of dreary hotel and banging on the door all night. Um, it's, it's scary to be a woman alone traveling in the United States. Mm-hmm. It still is. This is Livewire Radio. We're talking to Andrea Nevins about her film Hysterical on FX, which is uh, a documentary about women in stand-up comedy. We've been sort of talking about the the challenging side of it, but this film also is really funny and has a lot of like great stories about why it is that the, the women that you talk to in the film love this art form and sort of need to do it. And I want to get into that right after this short break. Stay with us. It's Live Wire House Party from PRX. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing, that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my. There's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. 
When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we are talking to Andrea Nevins, the director of Hysterical, a documentary on FX that uh, interviews and follows the uh, sort of performance and the lives of a number of women doing stand-up comedy. Um, have you ever done stand-up comedy yourself, Andrea? Were you ever tempted as like a <laughs> method directing when making this? <laughs> You're violently shaking your head. <laughs> Never, no, absolutely not. No, it's it's terrifying. It's terrifying. And that when the way that what these women do is really just to me the scariest thing I can imagine, short of jumping out of an airplane. Mm. Um, so that just describes who I am. <laughs> <laughs> Nikki Glazer has a line. The the comedian Nikki Glazer has a line um, in the beginning of the film, I think, where she says, uh, "Women have an advantage in comedy because we've been in our feelings forever." <laughs> Is there any is there any truth to that? I think there's one hundred percent truth in that. I, I do think that that women have been brought up with a lot of negatives, but one of the positives is that we've been taught to be uh, attuned to our feelings. And uh, when you can name things in a very precise way, that's often the source of a lot of comedy. Um, it's when you're sort of sh- when you as an audience member are shocked that somebody just revealed a truth that you hadn't even been able to name yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think these women have that in spades. They're really just gifted. One of the things I really enjoyed about the film was a, a kind of a moment to reflect on like the history of women in stand-up comedy and people like Phyllis Diller and, and Joan Rivers, and also the insane tightrope that they were walking mm-hmm. um, because of just how things were framed, you know, back in their day. Yeah, there's this moment where where um, Phyllis Diller's being interviewed by a bunch of men, right? And uh, <laughs> and and they're and they're just um, shocked, first of all, that she's willing to get up there and talk, but also terrified that she's a man basher, mm-hmm. and that that's the only way that a woman can find humor in the world is by tearing men down and she has to assure them that no, 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 no. The only reason why I could do this is because I love men so much. (laughs) Right. And and like moms, Mabley, uh, I learned in this film, you know, part of her kind of costume on stage was to be dressed very sort of in a house coat and, and seeming more elderly than she really was to kind of blunt the effect of the actual satire that she was putting out. Time and time again in those early days of, of women doing stand-up, they had to subvert any femininity. Mm-hmm. They had to be anti-sexual, mm-hmm. uh, which is fascinating. So moms did it by dressing uh, like, a, like a granny, and um, Phyllis Diller did it by making her hair crazy. Right. And everybody found ways to make it so that you would be paying attention to the funny and not to the body 
which I found a very interesting thing because there's yeah. this idea that uh, that if men are in the audience, the first thing they're going to be thinking about is not how funny she is, but how cute she is or right. whether he might want to go to bed with her. And so they had to blunt that. And it's taken a long time for women to get past that in the audience eyes. And I had this flashback to another documentary that I watched that addressed women in country music when you had that montage of all these different late night talk show hosts introducing Joan Rivers as like, my daffy little quirky little tiny little cute. And then with Dolly Parton, it was like, here's this little lady, you know, like Porter Wagoner or whatever. And um, even the way that they're introduced is diminutive and dismissive across these industries. It was a real kind of connective moment. <laughs> Isn't it surprising? And then when you get to see it and not just talk about it, it, it's that much more shocking. I had also never heard that Jerry Lee Lewis clip of what year was that, that Jerry Lee Lewis said what he said about women can't be funny. I, there were a couple of different references to it, and one was early on, and one was, I think, as recently as, as in the 70s. Unbelievable. I know, yeah. right? <laughs> That woke the dog up. <laughs> yeah, like, just for folks who haven't seen the film yet, this is Jerry Lewis basically saying he doesn't think women can be funny. Um, and then there was an interesting part in the film, Andrea, by the way, we're talking to Andrea Nivens about her film Hysterical, um, where you're interviewing Eliza Schlesinger, and you ask a question that Eliza Schlesinger interprets to be a version of, why do people think women can't be funny? And Eliza says to you, I thought we weren't going to talk about that. I'm curious, why was that question something that you weren't supposed to talk about? Time and time again, when we reached out to uh, women comedians, they said, I will not be part of a documentary that rehashes that awful uh, way of thinking, mm -hmm. which is that women aren't, aren't funny. Um, we have proven ourselves to be funny, so I will not continue to discuss that. And so I had <laughs> promised her that there was no way, shape, or form that that's what this documentary is going to be about. And what I asked her was, why do you think that that even came into being? But mm. she was she was really attuned to it, and so she just shut me down. <laughs> but, that, but it sounds like that is a question that women comedians, uh, maybe not all of them, but many of them are very tired of sort of litigating and answering. Exhausted. It's so ridiculous. Exhausted. And, and it's ridiculous. And come on, people, it's 2021. Uh, there are plenty of funny women that everybody can name. Let's get over that. Um, how are the comedians from this film that you've kept in touch with, how are they doing in this version of the world where they're really not able to get out and do stand-up comedy in clubs very much? I, I think it's been incredibly hard. I think they've all found creative outlets in various ways. Um, for a while there, Jessica Kirsten was like doing this Zoom bomb of people's Passovers, because huh. uh, <laughs> which was hysterical. Um, uh, but people have found different different ways. Like uh, a few a few people are now out at some outdoor venues. Um, but I know that all of them have felt really sad. This is this is a place of connection for them. This is a place where their where their voices are are allowed to to come out and to bottle them up like that. I think has been hard as, as we've all been suffering in our own, mm -hmm. in our own ways, being so isolated. Uh, do you have reason for optimism, um, having spent some time really immersed in this world of stand-up comedy and particularly talking to women who perform stand-up comedy? Like, do you feel like things are moving in the right direction for, for, for both the, the women who are performing and the women who will come later to perform? I, I really do. I, I feel um, a great deal of optimism about what's coming up for women in comedy, in part 
because of the Me Too movement and mm-hmm. some some strong self-awareness about exactly the ways that men have stifled uh, women's voices in this field. Uh, and I also feel like there's a new generation of women who haven't been through everything that uh, that this generation had and uh, and 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 come at it with a with a bit more force and uh, and energy. Um, you know, they kind of stand on the shoulders of, of the women who came before them. Uh, so I'm excited for that. Were you a stand-up comedy fan before this? I mean, you said that you were you were looking at it from a, a feminist perspective and as an interesting sort of performative thing. But have you now become like a fan <laughs> of going to dank comedy clubs and watching people tell jokes into a microphone? I cannot wait to go back. Yeah. I'm so <laughs> yeah. excited. I, I mean, it just it's 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 such it's so cathartic, uh-huh. and I don't think we've had that kind of catharsis. Uh, in a very oh, long time. Yes. And we're desperate for yes. it, right? <laughs> uh, well, Andrea Nevins, uh, the film is great. It's hysterical. It's on FX. Uh, we highly recommend it. And uh, we'll see you at a dank comedy club, <laughs> hopefully in the near future. I cannot wait. That was Andrea Nevins right here on the Livewire House Party. You can check out her new documentary, Hysterical, on FX and Hulu right now. A special thanks this episode to Will Fruworth, Portland, Oregon. Will is part of the Livewire member community and is generously supporting our show with a donation each month. And we are so thankful for that support because it's how we're able to keep the show going. So a big thanks to Will for helping Livewire out. This is the Livewire House Party. From PRX, I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we're talking a lot about performance on the show this week and live performance specifically. And so we thought it would be interesting to ask the Livewire listeners the question, what's the most memorable performance you have ever seen? Elena, what are folks saying? Okay, here is one that is going to make me jealous for the rest of my life from Brett. Second row seats for Prince touring the album Controversy, so super early. And the opening act was Morris Day and the time on a snowy February night in Minnesota. Wow. (gasps) That must have been an unforgettable (laughs) night. I bet it was seven hours long. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, you know, I know we're not really here to answer these listener questions. This is their time. But I'd have to put, Mm -hmm. I saw Prince right towards the end of his life when he did a very a tour of very small venues. And mm. my friend got tickets and then she couldn't use them, so she sold them to me and they were not cheap. And I acquired mm. them and I was – the jury was out for me as to if this was a good use of money up until he played Purple Rain on a grand piano and I just started bawling. Oh my God. <laughs> it was like, oh my yes, God. that Don't was even. worth it. Don't even with me. Uh, <laughs> kudos to Brett. What's another memorable performance one of the Livewire listeners has seen? Here's a non-concert one. Memorable, not best, is the hashtag. So that's <laughs> what I'm setting you up for. Okay. From Tracy, I ended up at an improv show in Portland and realized once we got there that we were the only people in the audience. <laughs> the troupe kept asking for audience suggestions, and it was so, like 8,000 O's, oh, awkward. We wanted to leave, but we couldn't bring ourselves to do it. <laughs> That's so memorable in a different way. <laughs> that is, well, I have a new stress dream plot yeah. line, Elena. 
only attendee of an improv show is now that's replacing, uh, you know, roller coaster where the tracks are out <laughs> up ahead. Less scary. Yeah. Right. I take the roller coaster. Okay. One more quick one before we get our next guest out here. Oh, I love this one from Hannah. I saw Richard III performed at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in high school. I went in thinking snooze fest, but I left speechless by how incredible it was. And I still talk about it. <laughs> Yay, theater wins. <laughs> yes, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland. That's going to be mm -hmm. that's going to be a happy day when that sort of stuff is happening again because I mean particularly if you grew up in the northwest like I did like you make a pilgrimage down there and I mean it really is eye opening when you're like you know in in school to see this stuff performed mm -hmm. at this level I mean it's a really amazing thing All right we are talking about performance this week on the show and our next guest literally wrote the book on it or at least a book on <laughs> it, which comes out this week Yeah it's called A yeah. Little Devil in America Notes on Praise of Black Performance. And Elena, it is such a good read, uh, which of course should come as absolutely no surprise uh, because it was written by Hanif Abdul-Rakib, who is a New York Times bestseller uh, and is one of the more frequent Livewire guests over the past few years. Hanif, welcome back to the Livewire house party. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's good to see you all. I think this is the second time since the pandemic, the second time yeah. since being <laughs> yeah. in our homes. So. Yeah. You keep making all of this amazing stuff during the pandemic, Hanif, whether it's like podcasts or music blogs or, or now this book. So was there a particular performance, Hanif, that you saw or were thinking about that kind of sparked the idea in your mind for this book? What's funny is uh, this book, as it is completed, is not the book that it was as it started. I initially, inspired by a somewhat odd and... Um, intense trip to Memphis that sent me into this kind of existential crisis about appropriation and black artists dying without receiving their proper due. Uh, I was thinking a lot about Isaac Hayes and Al Green. I wanted to write a book about minstrelsy and tie it to this history of appropriation and dislocating black artists from their work. But as I was working on the book, I realized that taking that approach was doing this thing that was even unintentionally See, to take that approach meant that I was centering whiteness, like mm. because mm. I kind of had to, you know, in order to tell some of the stories I was trying to tell. And I thought, well, that's not exactly fun for me mm. at this stage of my like writing life, or not exciting for me. And I didn't want to write a book that felt hard. I wanted to write a book that felt exciting. And um, around the time that I was thinking about switching modes in the book, I was on the phone with a friend of mine, and. They were like, casually, just very casually, like, I have this hard drive of Soul Train episodes, almost <laughs> every episode from the 70s to the 80s. And they were like, that's all I heard. And they, were, they went on to ramble about, like, what they were trying to do with it. Or what they, and I was like, no, no, send it to me. Like, I would love it. Like, you know, I'll pay you for it. I'll pay for shipping. Just send it to me. Huh. And I began watching hours of Soul Train, huh. like, literal, like, hundreds of hours almost had to be. And in that process... I think I tapped into the center of what became this book, which is my hope is that it's celebratory and not only daunting or not only painful or not only historically intense, but also something that really seeps deep into this idea of celebration without any, um, without any other pretense. Well, that was, I mean, you, you talk about the Soul Train line 
in the book, which as a kid growing up seeing Soul Train, I just thought, oh, this is a fun dance thing that's happening. But there's a <laughs> lot of layers to it, particularly yeah. for for the black folks that were on Soul Train. Yeah. And I mean, along with that, so I had no idea, you know, the essay that opens the book parallels these the, the, the Soul Train lines to the Great Depression era dance marathons, mm-hmm. which I had never heard of. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know those existed. And a friend of mine, different friend, um, he like, you know, got me hip to them. And then he sent me a folder of photos from those dances, which I don't know if y'all have ever seen. Yeah, they're nuts. They are just like, they're like alarming. They're really jarring. They're kind of beautiful in a way. Um, But like the whole circumstance of these marathons is like messed up. So I don't want to romanticize it too much. Um, But I got so captivated by just the brutality yet gentleness of it. Mm -hmm. Right, because you hear dance contest, dance marathon. It just seems like people are going to do the flat foot flugie for six hours. <laughs> and I mean, right. it was a whole a way for people, as you write in the book, to just try to maybe get a little bit of money or put food on the table. I mean, it was it was grueling and very dangerous. Yeah, and in some cases, one, people were dancing for like thousands of hours. Mm-hmm. Months. And in some cases, if you came in second, you got nothing. So if you danced for 1,457 hours, you won. You won a cash prize, all this stuff. If you danced for 1,456 hours and 57 seconds, you got nothing. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, of course, um, you know, you were sheltered for that time and fed for that time, but you were leaving empty-handed in terms of a, in terms of like prize money that could sustain you for a little bit longer. And there was something so horrifying about that to me that it was very much a test of very literal endurance. You know, it wasn't like, it was like everyone else drops and you're the only one left. And so you're, you're not moving towards a set time frame. You're moving towards everyone else's elimination. Mm-hmm. And to think about that and to contrast that with the kind of very different emotional tenor of the Soul Train line, both of them requiring partnering in a way that made me think a lot about what it is to be tethered to someone for either a long time or a short time. Um, that really changed the scope of the book immediately. Like when I get when I dove into those parallels, the book became a different book. Could you read a little bit from the the chapter sixteen ways of looking at blackface? Yeah, this is from the essay in the book, sixteen ways of looking at blackface. This is section seven. When I say that black performers used to wear blackface while performing in minstrel shows, I will not give you what you want. I will not give you the metaphor that ties it all to how easy it is to switch one's black self into all the things America imagines but doesn't want. I will not talk about crows or blackbirds or feathers or wings. I have no image of a night sky and a row of white teeth. You've had enough metaphors, and I've got a sneaking suspicion that's how we got here in the first place. The we being you and I, reader, or the we being you and I, America. When performing in southern towns in the 1860s and 1870s, all black minstrel troops were forced to stay in character, even offstage, dressed in slave rags and smiling from ear to ear while being shot at by white audiences on their way out of town. But this was the only way for white people to take in what they came to view as real African-inspired dance and not what had come to be seen as the imitations done by white dancers. Consume what you can never become and then kill it before it continues to remind you. And so, none of us deserve the metaphor here, but to say that black performers used to wear blackface when performing for white audiences so that nothing but the movements of their feet might be present in the room. Everything else too black to be visible. 
That's Hanif Abdur-Rakib reading from his new book, A Little Devil in America, Notes and Praise of Black Performance. I think this is the third book of yours that I've read, and it seemed to me like it was the most personal. I felt like I learned the most about your growing up and, and your experience in the world. Is this your most personal book yet that you've written as far as including yourself in the, in the writing? That's so funny. I've heard that a lot. People have said that a lot, but this actually feels to me uh, like my, one of my least personal, I mean, like for me, it doesn't get much more personal than a fortune for your disaster was, Mm, you know, like that was, uh, even if people, I know it's poems and there's like, you know, the speaker in the poem and the person, but I think that, that book is like the, the veil is very thin. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also think, and maybe this is just because of the emotional place I was in at the time of working on it, but I think that they can't kill us is it's just a really personal book. Oh. It's weird because I'm sure if I spent time with this as other people did, I would, I think the parts of this that are personal are way more honed mm-hmm. than the other parts of, you know, I yeah. think like talking about my relationship with my brother at the end, for example, is mm-hmm. a much more honed and thoughtful execution of the personal mm-hmm. than I think I'd ever gotten in any other book. And so there's ways that I think the personal in this book is more visceral, uh-huh. but I do think that I hide behind a lot of just, pure excitement for the telling of these stories. Yeah, I think it must be something about the connection between like that significant emotion about the units of pop culture that you're talking about and then the swinging away from research to provide just small bits like doing the dozens (laughs) on the bus, right? Or, you know, this is what it was like in the forest, you know, across the street from where I grew up. Or moonwalking, you know, at at a mosque. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I do think if there is one thing I think I've grown as a writer, it is that kind of transferring registers in in information delivery. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, I think in They Can't Kill Us, which is a book I still love and I'm proud of, obviously. Yeah. Um, it's, it's hard for me to pull back from like, here's my personal story and mm-hmm. here's my personal life and here's a personal anecdote um, to offer some more concrete things. And um, even in Go Ahead in the Rain, I found myself wrestling with that. But this book, it came so easy to me to kind of mm. shift the registers of information delivery Mm -hmm. where it's like, I can really weave comfortably in and out of the heavily researched or trying to bring people to a place where they can visualize the thing that I visualized and then occasionally nudge, nudge them to remind them that this is a real person telling the story. Mm -hmm. Uh, You dedicate this book to Josephine Baker. Uh, Why did you choose her? Um, you know, I was going to, well, I love Josephine Baker a great deal. The title comes from Josephine Baker. It's a, it's a fragment of a longer sentiment from her speech on the March of Washington. I was going to dedicate the book to Miss Toni Morrison, who um, who I love a great deal and who just means, mm-hmm. I mean, people who know my work a little, even a little bit know how much Miss Morrison means to me. But um, there was, I felt so conflicted um, you know, I was like, what if this is, hopefully this is not the best work I will ever do. And I don't know if I want to have Toni Morrison's name oh. there in that case. I never thought of you that, know? the implications of, of, of the book dedication. Yeah. And, and if that's and I say that I say that as someone who believes that this is the best book I've ever written, mm-hmm. like truly. And the book I feel very good about, but I was still like, but I hope, you know, I'm still in my thirties. Like, I hope I'm not. I hope this isn't it for me. Um, but Josephine Baker is so important. But also, to not take anything away from Josephine Baker, she's so important to the engine of this book. Mm. Um, not just the title and not even just the essay on her, but this idea of 
honoring a full life. Josephine Baker's full life often does not get, um, you know, she gets categorized by this era of her life. Mm -hmm. And you know what's so fascinating to me is that you can go on YouTube and watch 50 years worth of Josephine Baker performances. Mm. Like there's footage from 1925 and there's footage from her final shows in the mid seventies and there's footage of everything in between. And that is remarkable to me. Like, I can't believe that, 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 that that there's this much of an archive uh, by a single performer. And I found myself so much more fascinated by the performances when she was a little older, like performing in Paris in the Mm. seventies where she couldn't move as well, but she still had impeccable crowd control (laughs) just with her voice and her tone and her like, you know, her small move, her outfits. And so, you know, I was thinking about the celebration of a full life and not just the most scandalous parts or not Mm -hmm. the parts where someone is at their most mobile and capable of serving an audience. But Josephine Baker, who, showed up to the March on Washington in her, the uniform of the French resistance Mm. and spoke, you know, like that was, um, there was a real, there was a real propulsion that I found in the life of Josephine Baker that, that brought me to the book. And so, um, that was my way of showing some small gratitude. Um, the, the last chapter of the book, uh, is, is sort of dedicated or centered around a punk band, F you pay us. I'm wondering yeah. why that's where you where you kind of wanted to land this flight uh, and why that uh, band one, was important to you. I love I love that band. Um, you know, they're not as active as they once were and their window was kind of small, but and their members have done many a great many other things. Um, but I wanted to write about rage again. So I think if they can't kill us until they kill us, I wrote an essay about black rage, but I didn't, you know. If I go back and read it now, I often think, gosh, I think I need, I would have done some things differently. And then when I saw that show, the F.U. Payas show, um, and I saw how quickly rage was transmitted into love Mm -hmm. or how quickly rage and love were two vehicles kind of on the same, you know, on the same highway, just sharing the same lane simultaneously. It really unlocked something for me in the understanding of um, what drives me to stay in Columbus, what drives me to organize in Columbus, what drives me to be among the people in Columbus and not separate or build a hierarchy around my presence here, any of that stuff. And I wanted to kind of return to this idea of rage as I was, as I learned through that show. And as I learned through that group, uh, this is probably an impossible question to answer, or maybe a little bit reductive, but I, I just wanted, is there an overarching statement that that you're hoping to make with this book about, uh, you know, black performance in, in this country in particular and, and how it should be thought of, how it should be regarded? Uh, yeah, not really, only because I don't want to be prescriptive. Mm-hmm. But I mostly wanted to write a book that where the praise was too large. You know, I wanted to write a book where praise and joy was centered and immovable. Mm-hmm. And that was it. You know, I'm not trying to, I cannot correct the course of America. And I don't know if I have much interest in it, honestly. Um you know, all of our time here is limited and uh, I am not going to be the person who corrects the course of America's mess. But I think what I can do is say, gosh, like, isn't Mary Clayton wonderful? You know, like, shouldn't we return to more than just the one Mary Clayton performance that has been pushed upon us for, mm. for a long time? Or I can say like, isn't playing a game of spades like a performance? Oh, I love that. Essay. These kind of things. 
Well, um, uh, Hanif, this book is 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 really uh, just an amazing piece of work, and was so fun to read. Um, it really is celebratory. It really is joyous, even though it also describes an experience um, that at times can be very painful. So, congratulations on this book. It's really incredible. Thanks. It's always good to talk to y'all too. It's it's you know. We're here again in our homes. Yeah. <laughs> Catching up. Yeah. Fingers crossed that the next time we talk to you, uh, we're not like our first three-time guest oh, during, no. a, during a lockdown. <laughs> we'll come back whenever you want, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> that was Hanif Abdul-Rakib right here on the Livewire House Party. Uh, his new book, which just comes out this week, is A Little Devil in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance. This is the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarella. We got to take a quick break, but do not go anywhere because when we come back, we are going to be hearing from one of our very favorite performers. None other than Shaky Graves is going to swing by. So stay with us. It's Livewire. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal T this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we've been talking about performances on the show this week, and our next guest's uh, first taste of performing in the public eye uh, came by way of acting roles in Friday Night Lights and the Spy Kids franchise. That was all before he sort of really focused on music full-time. He's now celebrating the 10th anniversary of his breakout debut. It was the album Roll the Bones, Please welcome Alejandro Rose Garcia, also known as Shaky Graves, to the Livewire House Party. Woo-hoo! Oh, it's good to good to be home. <laughs> yeah, man. The last time we saw you was uh, during we were doing a cookout in my backyard in the summer, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and you were kind enough to join us and play a song. This was during the pandemic already. Um, how have you been doing since then? I, I've been doing good. How how's your um? How has your your tofu grilling advanced? <laughs> I, I feel like you were melting, you know, strange objects on a grill. Yeah, I was. Um, I came in for a lot of, I think, well-founded criticism about my <laughs> grilling skills because I was grilling up a bunch of kind of uh, plant-based products, which were not turning out the way I hoped. <laughs> How's life in Austin been for you? It's been wild. It's been a roller coaster. It's a part um, action movie, you know. Uh, did you ever see the day after tomorrow with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal? You know, oh, yeah. it, it's uh-huh. a little, it's a little like that, like roaming wolves, kind of ice tornado one day, <laughs> and then like it's the most beautiful day outside right now. Yesterday it was like oppressively hot. It's a very uh, melodramatic state that I live in. Yeah, and also Austin is a city that really thrives on the sort of energy of like live music events, and like that's not been really going on all that much. Um, have you kind of adapted your style a little bit during the, the pandemic in terms of like how you're performing? I know you've, you've got like virtual shows coming up and things like that. Like, are you getting kind of used to this way of performing? This is kind of the, this is going back to an older model because I I still feel like I spent a lot of time just not having shows and recording in my house. I, I spent a lot of time just tinkering. Um, and then that turned into other stuff. So it's, I've gotten to go back to basics and, and now, 
you know, there's a few more moving elements, like the, the being good at Zoom, which I don't think I still am good at Zoom right now. I'm doing <laughs> this on two different. <laughs> yeah, we're figuring this out as we go along. But um, but yeah, I've been doing some live streams, which is a a, a strange. Uh, strange experience, but it does also feel like early shows where you play to four disinterested people, uh, <laughs> except they all have cameras pointed at you this time. Uh, right. But they're being paid to be there. So I said, it's, it's a little weirder, but you know, it's nice. Well, speaking of your earlier days, I know that you're releasing a Roll the Bones 10. Yeah. Which is a, a re-release of your album, Roll the Bones. That was this like uh, a kind of phenomenon. What were <laughs> your expectations a decade ago when, when you were putting that album out the first time? Oh, man. I, I, I don't even know. I, I'm kind of catching up um, because for this record, I got to go back and look at like old journal entries. Mm. And it, it's nice. It's like a lot of my more realistic um, and kind of far-fetched dreams have come true in the 10-year interim. And I think most of it was that I just kind of wanted people to actually hear my music. Um, and if I was like, man, if one person really enjoyed this, like I'd be made in the shade. So I've, I, I, I did it. I've, I've, <laughs> I'm retired now. It's great. We did. I, I've, I reached that one person and, um, and you know, it's like the, those dark nights of the soul where you start to get down on your head and you're like, what do I, do? what do I even do in life? You know, like <laughs> this has been sort of a, a great moment to count my blessings and be like, wow, I've gotten to, I've gotten to travel. Cause at the point when I wrote this record, I was kind of trapped. I was living in LA trying desperately to be an actor, which meant just walking into room after room uh, and shaving my face daily, which I hate doing and, uh. <laughs> and being like, hello, my name is Alejandro Rose Garcia and I'm reading for Brad, the boyfriend. And, All right. <laughs> and they'd be like, no. And I'd be like, thank you. And then I would leave and I'd go into the next room and be like, please, I'm hungry. <laughs> like yeah. I'm reading for Chad, the boyfriend. They're like, no, you didn't. <laughs> I was like, okay, thank you. I didn't know this about your career trajectory that you had this other life where you're trying to be a working actor, where you're trying to be Chad, the boyfriend. Work that that's the exact way to say it. Working to be a working actor <laughs> is exactly right. Yeah, I mean, I grew up doing theater and performance, and my my mom is a playwright, and my dad's a set and light designer for theater or was Whoa. at that point. And so I I grew up around all that, and and just have always loved the performing art, you know? So I just kind of went for it. I just like, oh my God, hold on. I'm. It's your agent. They want you back in LA. <laughs> you finally booked it. What's that, Aven Avengers 9? Oh, wow, yeah, I would love to play Iron Man. Okay. Um. <laughs> I have a friend in LA who books like, who's an actor, and they book like one you know, sort of commercial a year that kind of funds the rest of their existence. And yeah. they said they're a professional auditioner. That's their yeah. job is auditioning. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, about once a year, they actually go play the guy in the prescription drug ad who's hot air ballooning despite his uh, infection it, or, yeah, it, you know, it, or whatever's going it on. Felt, it felt a lot like having like a gambling addiction, you know, where every day you're like, today's the day. Yeah, that's right. Daddy's feeling hot. You know, like, I mean, I can't tell you how many times where I was just like, I just crushed that. Mm. I, I did so good. And they were just like, no, you didn't. I'm like, oh. Or like, yeah, we actually already booked this person. We were just seeing the rest of it. Or yeah. like, we were just... We we were just thinking maybe he wouldn't be blonde, but after seeing you, we decided yeah he's he's definitely blonde. So <laughs> you know, th and you're just like, thanks. 
Well, uh, acting's loss is uh, music's gain, Amen. Alejandro. We have to say that. Um, this uh, week on the show, we're talking a lot about performance. Mm. Um, and, and we asked the Livewire listeners, what is the most memorable performance they've seen? Kind of just springing this on you, but is there a particularly memorable performance that you can think of, like as a fan or as a music appreciator? Yeah, I saw I saw Diane Twerd at a oh, wow. uh, yeah at a at at a festival that I I adored that um, actually uh, ended. Oh, that you guys you, you're you're up there. Did you ever go to Sasquatch or hear of yeah, Sasquatch? Yeah, totally. Sure. Their performance was so it was so scary for lack of a better word. <laughs> it was the late show too, so it was like after everyone had been out all day long. Like you know, eating illicit substances and and drinking in the sun, and they're like, oh man, everyone doesn't want to go back to their like weird campsite or whatever. I'm like, oh, there's one more show, yeah. <laughs> and the DJ came out in this ghoul mask and proceeded to say the longest stream of 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 like super creative, really harsh obscenities that I've ever heard strung together just perfectly, just like oh blah blah blah, and 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 it basically worked as this wild filter where anybody that was tripping too hard or like couldn't handle it left immediately. There were like right. throngs of people like, no, give it no, 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 no. And then everybody, like me, I was like, what is going on? And then people started to get closer and Ninja, the front man, jumped in the audience after like two songs and they started with all this clothing on and they just kept losing clothing throughout <laughs> until they were both in their underwear at the end. And I was just like, this is... The most compelling, I mean, it was, uh, talk about theater people. I was right. like, you guys are definitely theater people. This is insane. <laughs> what are you looking forward to uh, about live performances in rooms with uh, an audience, Alejandro? I mean, I'd say experiences like that. As someone who can get a little on the jaded side, because I do this all the time, um, I still, you know, there's those moments that the the kind of, ferocious nature of a of a, a show you don't expect or you go to see a really hectic show and it's just like a, a, a room of people smashing each other but you know that kind of stuff is hard to recreate mm -hmm. on zoom or you know via computers and I'm kind of grateful for the the, the the scaling back of stuff because I feel like a lot of times people just want to be in a room like I would really love to just like sit down and talk to like David Byrne for an hour. I, he doesn't even have to play music, you know, but I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, I'll go see your show. But I, I really just want to like hang out with whoever I want to hear play music often. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think these days, as things start to open up again, I think there might be a good opportunity to to still be like, well, let's just keep it more intimate and have mm -hmm. better shows sometimes. Right. It's, not mm -hmm. gonna, it's not gonna scratch the itch of wanting to like crowd surf, you know, at the Palladium <laughs> or something like that. Well, Alejandro, I see you've got your guitar there and your fancy oh. microphone set up. Uh, so as to play us a song, what were you going to play for us? I mean, I figured it would be fitting to play Roll the Bones, right? It's oh, like nice. The title, the title track. Um, yeah. I did a version of this in, in 2013 for a thing called Audio Tree, and that's the first thing that a lot of people uh, have seen of my music. Yeah, that's a really memorable video. <laughs> Thank you. But the... Uh, a lot of people don't know that there is an original recording of it that was off of this thing. So when I when I re-released it and kind of like was like, oh, I'm putting this re-releasing this album, I made a video for it, and people were like, yeah, I dig the remix, but like I really like <laughs> really like the original, and I'm like, this is, this is <laughs> this is the original. So uh, this is going to be somewhat in between them. Okay, right on. This is Shaky Graves on the Livewire House Party. Mm -hmm. 
That was Shaky Graves right here on the Livewire House Party. We love that guy. The 10th anniversary edition of his debut album, Roll the Bones, is out now. And if you'd like to hear more of our conversation with Alejandro, uh, which was super fun, you can check out a longer version on our podcast by going to livewireradio.org or check in wherever you get your podcasts. All right, before we get out of here this week, a little preview of next week's show. It is National Poetry Month, so we're going to talk to some of the most interesting poets working right now, including Franny Choi and Roger Reeves. Uh, We are also going to hear an incredible collaboration uh, with the poet Derek C. Brown and the band Helio Sequence, and we are going to be looking to get the listeners' answers to our listener question 
uh, which is what this coming week, Elena? little creative writing assignment. <laughs> Please write us a haiku. Well, maybe don't write us a haiku. Write yourself a haiku and send it to us. What are the parameters of haiku? Do you know this off the top of your head? Yep, 575. So a five-syllable line, a seven-syllable line, and a five-syllable line. And if you want to get super technical, you're supposed to mention nature in some way, but no, most people don't. Okay, we'll take a kind of uh, generous interpretation of haiku. Just get close. Get as close as you can <laughs> yeah. as a non-trained yeah. you know, poet and send in your haiku to us uh, by way of Twitter or Facebook uh, or even Instagram. We are at LiveWire Radio. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the LiveWire House Party. A huge thanks to our guests, Hanif Abdurraqib, Andrea Nevins, and Shaky Graves. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Ariana Donneville is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Roger Meyer of Beaverton, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, visit LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.